being reasonable. Now heard on WHUP LP Hillsborough, WCOM Carborough, and WPVM Asheville. Being reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsborough, North Carolina. Fasten your I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs. And we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we speak with DreamWork trainer and personal development coach, Benji Whitehurst, founder of the Durham-based Alchemical Dreamers Guild and local representative for the International Association for the Study of Dreams. Benji discusses his belief that all dreams come in the service of health and wholeness. So let's speak with Benji Whitehurst, DreamWork trainer and personal development coach. All dreams come in the service of health and wholeness. Right. What does that mean? So there's two pieces of it, of course, health and wholeness. And it's the opposite of the cultural belief, for example, that nightmares are bad or that certain dreams are boring or useless. Um, But for me, when I actually get into working with my own dreams and other people's dreams, no matter what's come, when I spend time going into it, I will often find layers of the dream that are pointing to psychological growth, to psychological healing, to physical health, to how I'm relating to the society around me. And I often find that... No matter what the dream, even if I want to initially dismiss it or label it as something unpleasant, that it portends something good in the end, and it can be used for that purpose. So to restate your belief, dreams have a purpose, Mm -hmm. and that when people dream, it's always for a positive reason and not for a negative reason. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Yes. On a scale from one to seven, say, how confident are you that this belief is true? I was listening to your last podcast. I didn't relate to that question much because I, I don't see any belief as true at all. I see them as more useful versus not useful, matching experience. So does this one match my experience? Yes, it does. I don't know, seven or eight at least. Mm-hmm. So this belief matches your experience. Mm-hmm. And so you have personal experience that tells you the belief is true. Mm-hmm. Is this belief true in a universal sense, an objective sense? in a more worldly sense, or is it, your, is it a personal truth? I would say that my belief is that we can't know what's true for everyone, but everyone I've worked with seems to relate to that belief when I share it with them, and it matches my 500-page typed-out dream journal that I do each day. I'm just trying to understand what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I've had these conversations before, and you probably heard to the last show, so yeah. I'm just trying to, to kind of get my terms understood before I move on. To you, what does truth mean? So with my background in Buddhist psychology, okay, 
that it's a very slippery word that there's the lower lowercase t truth and then there's a capital T truth. For us to even have a conversation, there really does have to be some unifying principle of some kind. Yeah. Um, so we don't want to slip into the postmodern truth that everything's relative because that's there's a fallacy inherent in that, in my opinion. So there is a universal truth. I think there has to be for us to be able to communicate. And at the same time, there's all these relative truths, the lowercase t truths, that when spoken, for example, Jeremy Taylor would do his workshops and he would say, all dreams come in the service of health and wholeness and everybody's heads would be nodding. And when I repeat that phrase to people in my trainings, they're like, yeah, that really, I can relate to that. So the universal truth of your belief is the original belief you suggested that all dreams come in the service of health and wholeness. Mm -hmm. That's the universal part of it. I think there's, that's one of the most universal statements that can be made about dreams and working with them. Mm -hmm. If that wasn't the case, and I'm not saying this, mm -hmm. that's true, but if it wasn't the case mm -hmm. that there were 10% of dreams do not come out of the service of health and wholeness, mm -hmm. would you be able to know that or learn that? In people's moment-to-moment -moment experience, I think most people dated today are not using dreams for that purpose. Like it... There's often an aha moment when they'll hear the phrase, but they may have spent their entire life dismissing dreams. So for their whole life, the dreams may have had that availability, but not been used in a way that promotes health and wholeness. There's often things like PTSD dreams as well, which are some veterans may have the same repeating dream for 30 years without it changing appreciably. And then we could look at that from a way to question that belief and say, well, are they actually serving that purpose? I think it could be a universal that the dreams are available to serve that purpose when in the hands of the right therapist or coach, but whether they actually function in that way. Any particular dream depends on the consciousness brought to them. I think that's what makes the lens true or not. So I hear you making a distinction that all dreams are for the purpose of health and wholeness, but individuals can use those positive dreams in a negative way and therapists could use those positive dreams in a negative way. Right. Mm -hmm. Psychics can also use dreams in a negative Psychics. way. For example, projecting meanings that really may not be there and telling other people what's true for them. How would one differentiate whether a dream is positive and someone is using it in a negative way versus the dream just being a negative dream. Does that make sense? Not yet. I definitely don't believe there is such a thing as a negative dream. So they're only positive dreams. Mm -hmm. And that's in the sense of Buddhist psychology, which teaches the basic goodness of everything that arises. Basic goodness being a capitalized phrase in Buddhist psychology. So to me, that sounds like a strong mm -hmm. statement. Dreams are only positive. Mm -hmm. And it's a universal truth. Right. And it's a positive without an opposite in this philosophy. Because okay. it, it's said to transcend the, the polarities of opposites. Would there be any case that you could think of, and I'm not saying this is the case, that would change your mind on that? Could something happen? Could you see one of your dreams or one of the dreams of a person you work with that would say, hey, maybe dreams 
aren't all positive mm-hmm. and a universal truth in some sense. So hearing your question, it brings me to the talk about lenses and like the lenses we are choosing to see through. And we can take any perspective we want. We can go within the world of positives and negatives, like lowercase, mm-hmm. and project that onto any dream, any phenomena. So, of course, we could use a dream for any purpose we want. But it, does that mean that they can't also... It's like the layers of awareness, the layers of perception. To the extent that we're bringing an expanded field of awareness to a phenomenon, and we are in touch with kind of that shimmering basic nature of it, then we're actually outside of that duality of positives and negatives. So it's kind of the third way. From what I'm hearing you saying, that there's this universal truth that you're discussing, but then we all have our lenses, the way we perceive this universal truth. If we all have these lenses, our own way to see this truth, then how do we know that it's true? This reminds me of a conversation I had with a friend who does a lot of um, shamanic experiences and entheogenic experiences. And those are very similar to dreams that activate a very similar state of mind. And when people come back from these experiences, they will often have this sense of this is true, this is absolutely true, and they'll come with these insights. And there's this question, okay, this is my truth, this is this thing the universe just shared with me, it feels 100% true. And, and yet, it's still kind of part of this realm um, where you can project true versus false uh, or um, find the ways in which it's true and the ways in which it's false. And so the, the utility of it is what I tend to focus on. Can we take any belief, including the one that all dreams come in the service of health and wholeness, and make it useful, make it serve people's personal development, spiritual development, the uh, psycho-spiritual opening process? For example, if Jimmy is sitting next to you, mm-hmm. and Jimmy practices some different form of dream analysis therapy, and... Jimmy works out of the framework that all dreams come out of the service of disease and divisiveness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What would be our response to Jimmy if he said that to us? So through an integral lens, we would want to find the partial truth in that perspective as well, the basic goodness in that truth. And so, for example, we could say that all dreams, because they're pointing to health, have to show the disease layer. Pardon if I'm not understanding what you're saying correctly. And I'm trying to get to a universal truth. I want to know what's universally true in the objective sense. You're telling me that all dreams come in the service of health and wellness. And Jimmy's sitting next to you and telling me all dreams come out of the service of disease and divisiveness. Right. How could we go about testing your claim versus his claims to find out what's true and real? So the integral philosophy which underlies the work I do... It has objective reality as one of four quadrants. You have objective, you have interobjective, which is kind of the world of systems around us. You have intersubjective, which is kind of what's called a we space, these fields and sense of connection and culture. And then there's pure subjectivity, the sense of I. Each of those four has a separate set of truth claims and what makes something objective or uh, real within it. 
So we have to be careful talking about beliefs, because if we're focusing just on making it objective, that's actually not a universal truth. That's one-fourth of the possible ways of looking at reality. So there's a way in which all four of these can be experienced at once, where, where the sense of inter, um, inner versus outer collapses into a felt sense of this is true right here, right now, in kind of a non-dual sense. I understand, I think. And what if Jimmy, who is sitting next to you, mm -hmm. says that there are four quadrants of truth and there's different ways to experience truth, yet the universal truth is mm -hmm. yeah. that dreams are in the service of divisiveness and disease. And so what I would actually do sitting beside him, I would get excited. I'd say, wow, there is another perspective coming in the room that we can integrate. What is the partial truth? How do we make this true? How do we find where it is relevant and then integrate this into this higher capital T truth system? You're telling me this is a universal truth. This is an objective truth. And Jimmy is telling me that basically the opposite is the universal truth, the objective truth. Mm -hmm. I'm a third party and yeah. I want to know what is universally true and what is yeah. real. What is mm -hmm. true in the universal sense? Mm -hmm. And if it's not true, I'd like to know that as well. Right. We get into this slippery kind of ontological territory about how do we make things real? Like the reification of these phenomena. Like, is there one universe? Like, there's my sets of perceptions, this set of perceptions. And we start slipping into this territory. How do we make real uh, what's happening? And dreams are funny because are, they're are like the least real. Are you saying that you and Jimmy might be di in different universes? That can be implied. I'm not sure that that's actually the case. But this, but from the perspective of the uh, dualistic I, I and you, from where it's like, here I am, here's this guy with a different belief system, um, I really do believe that what is seen, there's a phrase, the waking dream, where everything that we see is actually um, a part of us, part of like being projected outwardly which does not deny necessarily that there's, there are others in this world reflecting back, of which like there's a consensus reality. But the worlds are different. What is perceived here and there are very different. And we can see that politically, of course, and all around. But how do we actually make each other right, as opposed to like um, collapsing one view versus the other? That's kind of the challenge that we work with in this practice. And I want to know what you describe as the consensus. Mm -hmm. Reality. Yeah. Uh, for example, there are a number of chickens roaming around my yard. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how many chickens. Yep. <laughs> but there are chickens. And first, we can both agree that there are chickens roaming around my right. yard. Yeah. That is a universal yep, truth, that's an a objective consensus truth, reality. consensus. Yeah. There is either an even or odd number of chickens. Mm -hmm. Again, I don't know what the answer is to that, but there. But can we agree? that there is a universal a consensus and an objective truth there, whether there is an even or odd number of chickens. Mm -hmm. We can? On that particular point, in the relative plane, I think we could actually agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. Whether there is an even or odd number of chickens is true in the universal sense, no matter what our perception of mm -hmm. that is. Right. And... Whether there's an even or odd number of chickens is true, whether we even exist mm -hmm. or live or persist yeah. in this world or not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Is that true? It's true. And 
without actually counting the chickens, right? We're not in the same objective reality. How do you mean? So again, talking about the waking dream practice, we're here. It's like Schrodinger's cat or something like where we don't actually know how many chickens are in the yard and if they're living or dead and, until we actually bring consciousness toward it. And this is where the, the quadrants come in again, right? We have a, an objective reality, a potential actual objective fact that we can look at and agree upon where two or three or a hundred or a million consciousnesses look at something and have a shared experience of reality. But what, where the nuance for me is in this conversation is around interobjective, intersubjective, because there's a cultural component, there's a we that has to happen. And so in the waking dream, just like in the sleeping dream, we can actually enter into an experience together, have a we, and then... Are you saying a we has to happen whether there is an even or odd number of chickens in my yard? Yes, for there to be an objective reality, there has to actually be multiple consciousnesses looking objectively. What if you and I went down the street to the coffee house there and had yep. some coffee, mm -hmm. and four people came in my backyard plus a computer, mm -hmm. that, and this computer program does nothing but count chickens, Right, And these four people on the computer counts the chickens, and lo and behold, there is an odd number of chickens. Mm -hmm. Yep. How does the need for we affect whether there is an even or odd number of chickens? And this gets at the heart of the limitations of empirical science and the belief in results. There, em empiricism requires eyes to look at it, and those eyes have to have a certain stage of development to be able to have rational thinking. Because rational, so you get concrete operational thought, then you get abstract. Can you give me an example maybe to help me? So for example, the guy building my house is using um, concrete operational thought to move the wood and hammer. It doesn't require abstract thinking to build the deck. Um, whereas for us to actually look objectively and have a third person approach that's trying not to be biased, Let's say counting the number of chickens, for example. Like we look at that data, two sets of minds, do the math, which is abstract thought. And we say, okay, yes, we agree. And there has to be a sense of we to actually create that sense of we. There's a sense of resonance in that intersubjective sphere. It's called resonance or coherence. That in this waking dream, there is an objective fact that we're both experiencing. I guess what I'm saying is that if we are down the street drinking coffee, mm -hmm. I'm trying to understand where we, you and I, mm -hmm. fit in because, you know, other people are counting the chickens and a computer is counting the chickens, and maybe there's no such thing as people. Right. In a Buddhist lens, they would say that people are agglomerations of about 52 different constructs of sensations and mind parts and um, experiences. Let me ask you a question this way, then. If there was no such thing as people... Yes. What about the concept of even or odd? Like, there has to be consciousness looking at something to, for there to be a fact. Facts are derived from Are comparing. you saying that math only works whether there are people living? Or spirits. But yes, a, con a conscious consciousness. So if people or spirits did not exist, mm -hmm. then math wouldn't work. And there wouldn't be even or odd, or there wouldn't be math that explains the concept of gravity or math that explains the concept of, you name it. Right. Because in the evolution of consciousness and stages of development, evolution of facts, um, they co-arise. 
So it's not that it didn't, doesn't exist, it's that the rudiments of it would not have the proper kind of level of consciousness looking at it for math to actually be relevant. I'm not quite following you. Yeah, help, no. me, help me out a little bit. So for an empirical fact to arise, there has to be both, in all four quadrants, there has to be a social system that's supporting that awareness. There has to be a culture. There has to be a sense of I, a sense of we, looking at this fact. Otherwise, it's subjective. If you don't have two consciousnesses looking at it, a we, then it's actually subjective as opposed to an empirical. So fact. mathematics doesn't work outside of, say, a cultural framework. There's a cultural layer to it, right? It is an objective process, but there is also a subjective component to it and an intersubjective component. I'm really trying to understand how there is a subjective component to, say, math. I'm not saying that there is not. I'm yeah. really trying to understand how there is. I'm really trying to conceptualize it in my mind, mm -hmm. how math is dependent on our minds. Mm-hmm. Right. So if we look at the history of the development of math, we will see that it actually evolved in stages. So there's stages of development in all four of these quadrants, in all four of the realms of existence here. So we start out with one plus one. Like way back when, they were trading apples for beads or something, and they would count one, two, three, and trade it. And that was a very basic math. Are you saying one plus one didn't exist until we discovered that one plus one existed? This is that Zen koan, like, does a forest, it, does a tree falling in the forest make a sound if nobody's watching? I, I, and I'm really trying yeah. to understand where you're coming from, because yeah. I think I this think is, both a, this sides is a can be argued. example, and I think yeah. if we can get through this, then I think we can also get onto some really you know, yeah. interesting things. So I'm just, I'm just trying right. to get through. Oh, it's fine. I yeah, don't yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, we get down to these koans and paradoxes. And the interesting thing about my experience with these Zen koans is there's a point at which the two sides of the paradox are no longer paradoxical, where one can kind of see both sides of it. So I don't want to make one side true and one side false in this case. I think both sides are there. Um, but, and, and to answer your question, like how... How is it that there's a subjective component to math? You can see it indirectly by looking at the stages of development. Calculus didn't come first. You start with one plus one. And before one plus one, people simply were not doing math. So for humanity, math did not exist. We can't know exactly whether there was a god holding space for mathematics or something, because it's outside of the consciousness field. So are you saying that before humans could figure it out, one plus one could equal three, meaning if there is one chicken plus another chicken, mm -hmm. that could mean that there are three chickens walking around. And then we look at mythology, we get some numerology like that where the numbers don't add up. Is it true? There are examples of irrational number use, let's say, in mythology. What is irrational number use? In a minute, I want us to head back. I think I can clarify if we head toward dream work practices. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'm yeah. not trying to get yeah. away from dream work practices, but I would think that it's important for us to, before we talk about that, at least have a general agreement about mm -hmm. in what vein are we talking about it? Mm -hmm. Is it a vein that's something that's universally true or something that's true for you? And I know you discussed these other quadrants as well, yeah. but in my mind... It's hard for us to talk about 
the structure of the house and the, and, and the roof until we first agree on how the supports work. Mm-hmm. You understand? Yeah. I think that's what I'm trying to mm-hmm. settle. And then we can yeah. move upstairs. Yeah. So well, let me make a comparison here that might help us get back on track. Okay. When we're talking about dream work, we're talking about sharing subjective experiences intersubjectively and arriving at a shared experience within our hearing of a subjective experience. And that's very different than math or agreeing on chickens, right? Like, which is an intersubjective experience, like a we forming around counting chickens. They're, t- they're in two different domains. And so the process of arriving at this is true versus not true, let's believe this versus that, is actually very different for the two domains. That's why I'm heading into this territory a little bit. I think I see where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. Let's say that I believe Buddy Holly is a god, a literal god, Mm -hmm. not figuratively. Buddy Holly is a god. Buddy Holly reads my thoughts and tells me what to do. Mm -hmm. And I pray to Buddy Holly and Buddy Holly is a god. Yep. Jimmy, who is sitting next to you, has a shared experience Mm -hmm. that's like mine. Right. Jimmy thinks that Buddy Holly is a god. Yeah. And he prays to Buddy Holly. We have that shared experience mm-hmm. that Buddy Holly is a literal God. Right. For the purposes of this thought experiment, mm-hmm. Buddy Holly is not a God. He's a dead person. Okay. So what does a shared experience mm-hmm. have to say about whether something is true and real? Right. And here we have a good example of conflating intersubjective with objective or interobjective, because there's the cultural construct of God and our subjective experience that capital T, this is true, right? Buddy Holly is a God. In certain belief systems, right, um, which shall go unnamed, we want to make these subjective visionary experiences true for everyone, true for the whole world. But I'm telling yeah. you, for the purposes of yeah. this thought experiment, yeah. Buddy Holly is not a god. Right. Yep. But we have the shared experience of something that is not true. We continue our conversation with Benji Whitehurst as he discusses his belief that all dreams come in the service of health and wholeness right after this short break.
are listening to Being Reasonable on WHUP. If you have a belief that you wish to discuss, please connect with us through beingreasonableshow.com. But I'm telling you for the purposes of yeah. this thought experiment, yeah. Buddy Holly is not a guy. Right. Yep. But we have the shared experience of something that is not true. Right. And so what we would do in the practice of dream work, uh, especially from the Buddhist lens, is get really curious about this, what's arising subjectively. Here is this experience that even though it's not factually true, it's not objectively true, here is an experience that has a feeling of truth to it, just like a visionary experience or an entheogenic experience or a dream. Here is a shared dream where two people are agreeing that something is true that's not objectively true. And so it requires a different type of looking than an objective process, because it's obviously not true. What's the type of looking? Help me understand that type so of looking. So the type of looking is a group work process um, where we enter the shared dream together as if it's um, a shared experience and we point out the nuances of it. So what's it like being in this experience that Buddy Holly is a god? And then maybe I'll have tingles rising up my spine. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll be like fainting whenever I see his picture. Like mm-hmm. these are the subjective, those are the objective correlates of this inner experience. There is an actual um, objective, identifiable experience that would correlate with this experience, the subjective that Buddy Holly is God. The fainting, the, the posters on the walls. So the fainting, the posters on the walls, these wonderful feelings that Jimmy and I are sharing, mm-hmm. what are we sharing? It is a shared subjective experience. I would not call it a, you could call it a belief, but that word, the problem with the word belief is that it, it, people often use it to conflate things in different categories. When we start saying it's a kind of naming the category or the domain the belief is happening in, like I believe in science, I believe that there are chickens is a very different category of experience. I think I see where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. So maybe help me out here. Yep. What is the difference between a shared subjective experience mm-hmm. and a subjective experience? Okay. I, I want to give a specific example from the field of dream work, because this is where it gets interesting with dreams. So we hold dream groups, and people come, and they share dreams. They've had this nighttime vision or dream a month ago, 30 years ago. And in the present moment, they're sitting in the group sharing this experience. And they're actually having the experience in the present moment. It's actually not a past dream. Because the moment a subjective experience is retold, it's happening in the room. And so, this is where the intersubjective fields and experiences happened. It becomes an experience all of us are having at once. All of us step into the imagery of this dream. And then it is a um, shared dream experience. There's an intersubjective sense of we I see. looking at this imagery together. Are we saying that the more people who share a subjective experience, the more likely that shared experience is true? The more likely it will be held in an intersubjective way as a cultural truth. Are you saying that more people who believe in something they believe, believe it? The more people believe it, the more true it is. Yes, okay. that's what so I'm the saying. the more people mm-hmm. who believe it, the more true 
in a in an intersubjective and subjective felt sense. There's a felt sense of truth, but not necessarily an objective. It may not be objective, and that's where we get problems like scientism, where there may be flaws in scientific research, but because it feels true to the people holding that belief in science, they may not be looking objectively at the actual facts. Are you saying people in science who come to certain truths come to that truth because of feelings? Yes. I can give a specific uh, example of a study that came out that was controversial. There was a guy named Bem at Cornell, last name Bem, who was having people look at computer screens and had the galvanic skin response being tested um, for their response to images. But here's the catch. The images being shown, half of them were kind of peaceful and half of them were either violent uh, or sexual, where they would generate a very different skin response. And his research showed um, at a very high statistical probability, like um, one in a million or something, that people's skin was responding to the images before the images were shown and before the images were chosen by the computer randomly. And in the field of psychology and parapsychology, um, this is a very uh, controversial area because it contradicts the belief system about, of about 80% of the people involved. And so there was an emotional response to this study that was not objective, in which instead of um, what they basically said was, okay, our research methodologies must be wrong because we're getting this objective result. And they're, instead of... Um, changing the belief system or being open to changing the belief system, they're instead trying to wipe out 50 years of psychological research, including in other fields. Um, so it's an interesting example where emotions are dominating. It may or may not be true in the end that this is a Emo fact. I'm sorry, emotions of who are dominating? The emotions of the scientists in the academies of science. Um, how is it dominating? Just help me out. I'm just trying to understand where you're coming from so I can... Yeah. Yeah. So imagine an academy of scientists who mm -hmm. are mostly atheists and materialists okay. who do not believe that anything outside the immediate present is even possible. Um, so because there is no mechanism shown for how we can possibly perceive something in the future from a materialistic lens, there is a belief this must not be true that's hanging in the background of this. So there's a subjective quality to the research happening. So here's the scientist that believes something different coming in and doing different research, asking a different question. And he's getting a different answer than the academy basically approves. Like, there's politics involved in science. So you're saying that there mm -hmm. are scientists who run a study, right. and the study shows some contrary results. Right. And some academy mm -hmm. says that these results are contrary mm -hmm. to the prevailing paradigm. Exactly. So we mm -hmm. are going to do what to your study? So we are going to uphold the present paradigm by dismissing 50 years of research. So in the case of science, mm -hmm. let's say there is one person who runs a study. Right. And they get this far out result mm -hmm. that doesn't jive with the prevailing paradigm. Right. Let's say you have an academy made up of scientists. And they say, we still think that the prevailing paradigm really explains the majority of cases and maybe could even explain your case. Mm -hmm. Yep. 
at that point, mm-hmm. what could we do to find out what is true? There's options. You could do more research. You could fund more studies with the same scientist and try to replicate the results. You could also try to come up with a scientific model that would disprove it. Like there's a lot of rational things that could be done in that moment. So there's a manner in science that you're saying is self-correcting. Mm-hmm. That if the prevailing theory is wrong, and it could very well be as theories mm-hmm. are wrong, yeah. that science has a mechanism to falsify that prevailing theory over time by replication mm-hmm. and by means that might root out biases and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And because science is political, there tends to be one prevailing paradigm at any moment in time. So the non-prevailing paradigms tend to be, from a political, subjective, cultural stance, um, lowered in status. And so there's often a partial objectivity in science that's unfortunate and it slows down research. But over time, do you think that the truth would come out when more tests are run or there are more studies that the prevailing theory doesn't seem to account for? Or is that not? That seems to be happening. Yeah. And the science seems to get more complex. It seems in my experience of multiple sciences to move toward an integral model where the partial truths of each theory, the strengths of each model are valued and uh, interjoined to form a more um, versatile model. Are you saying that science does not do that? Vis-a-vis parapsychology, they are not doing that. There's, there's still kind of a rejection mode. And by parapsychology, what do we mean? It tends to include the study of psi, mental epiphenomena, consciousness, mediumship, precognition, things that normally fall outside the normal scope of psychology. And why do they fall, fall out of the normal scope of psychology? Because they portend something beyond materialism. So beyond materialism, what do you mean? Beyond the belief that uh, life ends at death, and beyond the belief that we are our bodies. Whereas the parapsychological model will often assume that there is a mind or some part of ourselves that separates or exists in a slightly different dimension, for example, with telepathy or mediumship. Well, you asked two interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Do we survive our death Mm -hmm. and are minds independent from our brains? Right. And I would say the field of dream work indicates very clearly and experientially that yes, it does. So when we have a dream, our brain is not involved? It is involved. Um, And you can see that just because let's say that you have to pee, you will have a dream where you have to pee. Okay. If there is a car alarm going off, you'll notice that in your dream you may have a sound of a car alarm. Like there is an infiltration of the physical realm into the dream space. Um, But where the evidence comes in for some of these alternative phenomena, it is fairly well documented. And I've personally had experiences of visitation dreams. I've had experiences of precognition where very unusual events are foreseen and foretold by several months in my own dreams and others. If those dreams in your case are not coming from your brain, where are they coming from? A lot of potential answers. I'm not sure there's a way to know. So again, I tend to avoid belief and tend toward 
naming guessing when it happens, so this is more guessing. I mean, it could be a field that holds future information that can be tapped. Perhaps there's a part of ourselves that exists outside of time. If one doesn't know the answer to a question, is a good default position, I don't know and won't believe it until there is evidence to know, or is a better default position, I will believe in those things I don't know until there is evidence to show me otherwise. My favorite way to work with this is to change the languaging slightly, saying I'm holding a belief that, instead of being kind of immersed in the belief, because there's an unconscious way. Okay. And a lot of us walk around the world not even knowing that we believe something. Okay. Where we're holding a fact and we've lost curiosity around it. And I think there's an alternative way where that's a little bit more spacious, where I'm I recognize that I'm holding this assumption or holding this belief or really wanting this one thing to be factually true. And if I hold it lightly like that, I think in my experience I have a better experience of the world because it allows me to see things that might not fit. So you're saying part of you believes it and part of you simultaneously mm-hmm. might not believe it. Exactly. That paradox, right? Can I have both sides of the paradox happening at once? Holding the belief in a useful way and yet also holding openness. Thought experiment. Mm-hmm. Let's say I believe I can fly. Mm-hmm. I can fly. I believe it. Yep. But part of me simultaneously doesn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Let's say I go to the top of this roof right here Mm -hmm. and I jump off. Yep. Is that belief truly a paradox? (sighs) I do see it as a paradox because I actually want to be so open and rational at the same time to be able to evaluate things that seem so obviously false to me because sometimes the things I hold most dear, those sacred cows, end up being false. So I actually do want to hold the possibility that I could climb on a roof and jump and have a different experience than gravity. But do I want to do it? No, I want to have enough wherewithal to test things in a way that's not going to uh, eliminate other possibilities of life. So it sounds like you want to know what is objectively true. Right. So if you are holding two beliefs that are contrary in your mind. And technically, by the way, that's a subjective belief because it only involves one person. Objective requires more than one eye looking at it. If you jump off this roof and you don't fly Mm -hmm. and you crash to the ground, I would be sad, by the way. Yes. Would your subjective experience or feeling about whether you could fly have anything to do whether... You could fly. And your set of questions is funny to me because we actually do an experiment related to this each year in our DreamWork training um, where we actually ask ourselves throughout the day, can I fly? Because it's uh, one of the markers between the dream state and the waking state is that in the dream state, if I believe I can fly, that belief actually allows me to fly and become somewhat lucid in a dream. And the reason why I brought this up, if you'll remember back, is that you said that you could hold Mm -hmm. contrary paradoxical beliefs in your mind at the same time. Right. And I was trying to come up with a thought experiment where I could hold a paradoxical belief, Mm -hmm. where I could fly and not fly. Yep. 
But then I try it. Mm-hmm. I test it. Right. I test the claim. Mm-hmm. Can I fly? Yep. And then I'm thinking mm-hmm. the way I th- am thinking about this. And all yeah. of a sudden, there is an objective truth that interrupts my mm-hmm. two sets of belief that I'm holding in my mind at the same time. Right. And that objective truth is I can't fly. Right. In that moment, it's factually true on a subjective level that I can't fly. At least on a subjective level, in that moment, I can't fly. There's and it's a not true on an objective level? If there's more than one person watching, it's also objectively true from that lens. So if nobody's yeah. watching and I crash to the ground, then I still might be able to fly? It falls into a no man's land. But it just means there isn't an objective consensus on it. What if I jump off this roof and I film myself doing it? Then there would be multiple eyes on it at some point. So what does the act of placing an iPhone filming me jump off this roof Mm -hmm. have to do with whether I can jump off this roof and fly? (laughs) And I'm not trying to put I'm really trying to understand where you're coming from. Yeah, there's two pieces that perhaps aren't spoken. One is there's a present moment lens. It is true right now, I can't fly. But I actually don't know what will happen in the future. But there's also a developmental piece to this where I actually hold the possibility that as I grow and develop spiritual gifts, for example, I might actually be able to develop the ability to do things I can't physically do right now. Um, There are examples in the field and study of physical effects mediumship where people can move objects, where people can levitate. And I hold an openness and a curiosity in my being toward what is possible, that the things that today are not that are, number one, not socially accepted, and number two, not physically demonstrated in a consensus way, that they're possible. And I'm really trying to understand how my level of curiosity Mm -hmm. or whether I can do something in the future or not affects whether I can get on this roof, jump off, and fly. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe we're getting close. So, (laughs) Because I treat waking reality as a dream. Like the waking dream, it's called. It doesn't mean it's not real, but it does mean that there's a reification happening. Like that from my eye, subjective perspective, there's a tendency to make real, to make true. And I find the more meditative practice I do and the more dream yoga I do specifically, these practices open more possibilities than they close. In my life, I can say yes. And in my life, I can say at times I think it's been myself. Have you in your life ever experienced or known somebody to experience a belief system? And this person experiences this belief system and is so confident that this belief system exists that any additional information that could show that that belief system might not be Correct is not seen by that person. It's a very generous way of phrasing it. Yes, I know quite a bit of people like that. Why do you think those people you have seen do this, and I've seen people do this, mm-hmm. and at times I think I've been guilty of it myself, what's driving it, do you think? So in the field of psychology, they talk about stages of adult development. So you bring in people like... Um, Ken Wilbur, Don Beck with Spiral Dynamics, um, Susan Cook-Greuter. There's different researchers that look at this exact question. 
Um, and it comes down to the ability to perceive complexity. And what they find is that you start with kind of, again, the concrete operational thought, which is not abstract. And it's not actually looking rationally at either side or any side of something. People are, are having an immersive experience in this realm. Out of that, people can grow into one side or the other. They tend to be very polarized into a black and white space as, as they grow out of that. And again, it's an immersive experience kind of in a belief system. But as people start to grow, there's a rational stage of development. There's kind of a mythic stage of development. There's a traditional kind of churchy or uh, temple-oriented stage of development with the empires. And then you move from that into a modern global system that's able to have debates. Um, like you look at people like uh, Jordan Peterson out there having lots of debates. That's kind of that rational lens. Okay, let's talk about this, where they can step fully into one side and argue it. And then sometimes they can even switch places on stage and argue the opposite. So are you saying that the people who get stuck in these belief systems, they have not developed into a higher state of neurocognitive development? Their capacity for perspective taking has not been fully explored. They have not reached whatever the highest mm -hmm. cognitive principle is. Right. Because if they're in a black and white mindset, closed to new information, in that particular instance of behavior, they're actually coming from a concrete behavioral place as opposed to an abstract place of looking objectively with a third-person perspective at what they're experiencing. So they're not able to see things as a third-person would be able to see their beliefs. Right. They that, see be their beliefs only in the way they can see their beliefs as something that just is absolutely true no matter what and can't step outside themselves mm -hmm. to see what others see or maybe what Right. At that stage of development, sees. there's a conflation, a confusion of a felt sense of this is true for me and uh, this is true for everyone. How it's would collapsed. you help somebody like that? So there's practices to develop from one perspective to another, um, perspective taking capacity. You and it's slightly different depending on where people are. Of a different person or a different perspective. So what we do in dream work, which is one of my favorite ways to do it because it is not personal. People don't take it personally because dreams are so bizarre that people are like, what do I do with this? And so what we do to develop this perspective-taking capacity in this field, we ha will have people share the dream and either take this perspective of another character in the dream, so this thing that's portrayed as an it, we actually take it on as an I, or if it's too intense, we'll have a dialogue happen, like an I-thou dialogue. And either one of those is a way of coming in contact with that foreign-feeling perspective. So we, there's practices that get us, number one, to talk to and experience more intimately this thing that feels like an it. And that's where the magic happens. The moment we go from turning away from something, um, like if, like I hear a lot of people say something like, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we want to honor that felt sense of trueness for them. And at the same time, that is often in juxtaposition with, I believe this, therefore I can't look at that. So the next step can be to turn toward this thing 
uh, even if it's called satanic or whatever, and actually look at it for the first time and say, okay, in my dream of Satan, he has two horns. Oh, and he's blue instead of red. They always told me he was red, but he's actually blue in this image. Okay, what does it feel like being with him? I notice my stomach's contracted. Even this moment of turning toward, even if it's the thing we absolutely hate, or we're told we can't look at, the moment we look at it, that breaks the, the, the curse of being stuck in just one side. And so, to the thrust of your argument, you're helping people see things mm-hmm. from different perspectives. Yep. And when somebody sees something from a different perspective, mm-hmm. from a different point of view, yeah. what are we doing for that person? Why does that help that person? Mm-hmm. Okay. First of all, we're not trying to change the person. The moment we try to change somebody, that energy, they can just feel it and then they will back off. Oh, sure. Right? What are they gaining yeah. from? So, what they gain, so the Buddha said the world is suffering. Like when we're stuck in this cycle of emotion, when we're in this immersive experience of cycling pain, it's not very pleasant. A lot of people, being in their families hurts, being with their friends hurts, being at work hurts. Because there's an immersive experience within the pain. So, the moment one starts developing perspective, we can come into contact with all these things that we're resisting. And our dreams portray these resistances beautifully. All these nightmare characters, these things in dreams we really don't want to look at, we come in contact with these. And we can find those contractions in ourselves. They're often literal contractions in the body, like a knot in the stomach, a knot in the throat, headaches. And these symptoms can actually start going away automatically when we like, oh, wow, whenever I'm with my father, I am clenching my stomach. Okay, let me breathe into that. Way back to our beginning of our conversation, and we had the chicken example. Yeah. And we wanted to know whether there are an odd or number of chickens. Mm-hmm. And if we had a computer mm-hmm. count our chickens, we had a special computer that ran a special program that counted our chickens. Yep. Is this computer offering us a different perspective to whether there is an even or odd number of chickens? It would offer the perspective of the people who programmed it. Completely up to you. I would like to reflect on this conversation, and I'm going to listen to it again, mm-hmm. and maybe you could do the same, and then at some point, maybe we could come back together. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then see if we could have resolved anything about what we've talked about. And then at that point, would mm-hmm. that be cool to you if we could move on? I love chatting. Okay. Yeah. Good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon. And you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week. You can't fake the funk.
Enjoy the funk. 